Our gospel lesson for today is from Mark, the first chapter, verses 29 through 39. Hear now God's words for you. As soon as Jesus left the meeting place with James and John, they went to the home of Simon and Andrew. And when they got there, Jesus was told that Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a fever. Jesus went into her, took hold of her hand, helped her up, and the fever left them, left her, and she served them a meal. That evening after sunset, all who were sick or who had demons were brought to Jesus. In fact, the whole town gathered around the door. Jesus healed all kinds of terrible diseases and forced out a lot of demons. But the demons knew who he was, and he did not let them speak. Very early the next morning, Jesus got up and went to a place where he could be alone and pray. Simon and the others started looking for him, and when they found him, they said, Everybody's looking for you. Jesus replied, We must go to the nearby towns so that I can tell the good news to those people. This is why I've come. Then Jesus went to the Jewish meeting places everywhere in Galilee where he preached and forced out demons. This is the word of the Lord. It always seems strange to me that in Mark's gospel, and really in in several places in the other gospels, that Jesus is always trying early on to get people to be quiet about who he is and what he's doing. It almost appears at times that Jesus wants it to be a secret. Last week we talked about the evil spirit who who recognizes who Jesus is in the synagogue and Jesus casts it out, but He won't let the evil spirit speak after that. And in today's text, again, the spirits recognize Him, but He won't let them speak. Mark doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus starts off keeping His identity a secret. Many folks think it's because Jesus is trying to show by both word and by deed who He is before He formally declares Himself to be the Messiah. But we don't really know. We just know what the Gospel tells us. But if you read Mark carefully, it seems that Mark's primary view of Jesus is that His mission is to preach and teach. All those other things that we love to think of in the ministry of Jesus is almost secondary, and yet they're very prominent. What I find very interesting, however, is that when we read the Gospels, Jesus never, ever calls what He does miracles. We call them miracles. That's our word for things we don't understand. Jesus doesn't call them that. For Jesus, all these people who find their health through His intervention, all the evil spirits or the demons, whatever that means who leave, people's reaction is they're astonished. Jesus treats it as if it's the most normal thing in the world. Things we label as miraculous or out of this world or some folks call magical. The gospel writers treat them as if this is the way the world is now that God has entered the world in this new way. No surprise. So Jesus challenges our understanding from the beginning about what's normal, what's natural, and what is greater than that. 
What we call normal and natural may in fact simply be a perversion because we don't understand how God operates. You see, modern people are not the first to struggle with how we are supposed to understand those things called miracles. Most of the people Jesus met, including the disciples, spend far the greater amount of their time simply astonished that Jesus does what He does and says what He says. They don't understand it either. No lesser life than the great St. Augustine, way back in the 5th century, says, if we only had eyes to see that which we relegate to the natural is in the eyes of faith a sign of a miraculous, loving God. Jesus feeding the multitudes is not so different than what a baker does every day. Turning water into wine, that's not so very different from what happens every day in a winery. It's all about the miracles of the God who loves us. Of course, that's not how we think of it at all, is it? For us, it is unusual. But because we trust that Jesus is the Son of God, we expect Him to do marvelous things. And of course, He does. We think of Jesus above all else as God's vision of compassion and steadfast love in human form. When there are needy people, Jesus is always the first one there. And even though he tells people not to talk about these things, well, people are people. They can't help but talk about it. They can't keep quiet. And so whether he's ready for it or not, Jesus quickly becomes famous. In fact, he becomes so popular with people needing his help that he can scarcely move about. And that's why we find Jesus at the end of today's text, at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, going off to be by himself, pray. He's seeking a little solitude. Ministries demanding, even ministry for Jesus. And so early in his ministry, he understands if he's going to do this task, he has to have time to go off and be alone with God. Let me tell you why I think Jesus told people to be quiet and not say publicly what He was doing and who He was. I think Jesus understands too well the price of fame. People will follow anybody who can fulfill their most basic needs. And Jesus didn't want to be seen as a magician. He was more than that. Being a magician is not God's way. Jesus understood that taking care of earthly hurts and fulfilling the needs of people is just one thing He's about. As the very Son of God, He has more to do on this earth than just that. And too much popularity can actually endanger the mission. And of course, that's what happened, you remember? They wanted to make Him king there in the end, but Jesus wouldn't allow it. The temptation in the wilderness that we will read about in just a couple of weeks, that's exactly what Satan offered him. Come on, Jesus, be famous. They'll make you king. And Jesus won't do it because his life, his work, his ministry 
is more important than that. However much Jesus did not want to be known as the traveling magician, mollifying the crowds with bread and sideshows, he could not help but react with compassion to those who seemed to have the greatest need. And so in spite of his attempts, people heard about him and they streamed in and begged him for help. Last week, it was the man with the unclean spirit. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And he's restored. At the end of the worship service that he's attending here in that synagogue, Jesus leaves the worshipers astonished. And then he goes home with Peter for lunch. Here in the South, we'd call that inviting the preacher home for Sunday dinner. But when they get there, they find there's a problem with Peter's mother-in-law. You have to understand, in this society, people lived in fairly significant family groups. So it's Peter's home, it's Andrew's home, their wives are there, presumably if they've got children, they're there, and the in-laws are there too. It's a full house. Jesus, I want you to note, never requires an audience to do those wonderful things that people need. They come in, they're told that the mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus, in his need to serve other people, goes and heals her. But I would also remind you to be forewarned. When you come in contact with Jesus, whether it's here in the worship service or whether it's in the place where Jesus has done something remarkable for you, it will lead up to things that surprise you because there's a direct relationship between Jesus touching our lives and us getting up and serving as well. And that's precisely what the mother-in-law does. If you have been blessed by the presence of Jesus, you too are called. It took the original 12 disciples, all of whom were men, a long time to learn this lesson. But a woman whose name we do not even know. The only thing we know is a relationship, a mother-in-law. And that's a joke in our culture. She's the one who first models discipleship. She's the one who first models ministry. She is healed. She immediately gets... And Mark loves the word immediately. Everything's immediately. But she immediately gets up. And she does what she can do. Her first and immediate action is service. We're here today to ordain in this service and install at the second service new elders into the life of the church. And it is fairly easy on a Sunday like this one to think of the calling of discipleship and ministry in the life of the church as belonging to ordained clergy and belonging to those who have been called to be elders. We know that that's a part of our calling. These new elders have been through several long weeks, actually a couple of months, I guess, of training that helps them to realize that. But what we probably don't say often enough is that ordination, as important as it is, is not alone in the call to ministry. 
to have been touched, to have been redeemed, to have been made whole by the living Christ makes us all disciples. And that makes us ministers. Whether we want to be or not. When we have known the presence of Christ in our lives, there ought to be something almost automatic about us wanting to turn back and serve in His name. I've hinted at it before, but let me tell you, that kind of ministry comes with a cost. It will cost you in time. It will cost you in money. It will cost you in emotion. To truly serve in this ministry with Jesus is never easy. But it's what we want to do because we have been touched by God. I've said this to you, I think, in previous sermons, but I think it's worth remembering again. There is a crest of an old Scottish family, and it's in Latin, of course. They always were. But on the crest, what it means is saved to serve not a bad definition of the Christian life, is it? Saved to serve. Ministry in the name of Jesus. And this passage not only says something about that, it provides us this interesting look that it's not just men who get called. It's women and ultimately boys and girls who get called into this role of servant. Examples of ministry are all around us. But today I want to talk about a few that are in my own recent family experience. As you know, Karen's mother died last week, last Wednesday to be specific. I took Karen to Hendersonville early on Thursday, stayed a few hours, and then came home to tend to stuff here over the weekend before going back after Bill Bazell's memorial service. On Sunday afternoon, several of the church family made the two-hour drive across the mountain to attend the visitation. I drove really fast. I broke the speed limit. At least two of those families beat me there. And some of them were in second service. On Monday, the day of the funeral, in what could have been a significant snowstorm, two families of the congregation came across the mountain to attend the funeral proper. Both of those things are prime examples of ministry. I don't want to begin to count the cards and the notes that have shown up in our mailbox. I'm not a card writer but some of you are. And that's called ministry. But then there was the young Lutheran minister who conducted the funeral. First of all, he looked like about 16. <laughs> but I know he was a little older than that because he was a college graduate, he was a seminary graduate, and he was married with two kids. And a third one on the way. He told us 
the afternoon of the visitation that his wife was expecting and that he hoped she could hold off until after the funeral or at least that the baby would come before the funeral. Okay? Got that picture? When we gathered for the funeral on Monday morning, he walks in and he tells the family, I've got a new son, but that means we won't have music for the worship service. We'll have to sing a cappella. So here he is. He can't have had much sleep because he was at his wife's side for the birth of their third child. He shows up for a funeral, absolutely prepared, and does one of the best funerals I've ever heard. And I've done a bunch of them. Trust me, it was a terrific funeral. That's ministry. And that's also one of the ways we understand the cost of ministry. Do you think he would like to have been there with his wife and child? Well, yeah. He was with us because that's where he was needed. All of those examples are examples of what it means to count the cost in following Jesus. It took time, it took effort, it took money, it took some sort of an emotional connection. We give in ministry as we have been made able. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Peter's mother-in-law was made well and got up and fixed food, some folks are going to say, well, you know, that wasn't very much. That bunch of sorry men could have made themselves a sandwich. And I guess they could have. But you understand ministry is what we understand we're called to do and what is within our capability. She did what she knew to do. And I would remind you that showing hospitality is listed in the Bible as one of the greatest of all the gifts of ministry. Not all of us can serve in the same way. These new elders are each have a different committee assignment. They'll each do things slightly differently. That's the way it's supposed to be. And it will cost them as your ministry will cost you. Not all of us are supposed to do the same thing. When our children were little, if one of them fell and broke an arm or a leg or something, it's not my job to fix the broken leg. My task is to make sure there's a decent doctor who can fix the broken leg. We all have our roles within the life of the church and our society. We can't do it all except together. And together, we can truly do remarkable things. Ministry is a calling. You've got new elders today who felt that call and they're going to be ordained here. But you have to understand that the calling is not just for them. The calling is yours. 
And if you've not found the place in the life of the church to do that, then you're not living up to God's calling for you. And I urge you to think about the ways you can do it. All the old excuses won't work. Y'all just aren't that old. I'm sorry. You're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too infirmed. It's not that you've not done it before. There is a place. We are the church. And this call of ministry is extended to every one of us. And one of the ways you can do that is when you support these new elders who we're going to ordain in just a minute. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.